0: Hi everyone welcome to this week's asf weekly science podcast as promised this week i have a very special guest to talk to you about some of his reflections and some of the reflections on the field on the progress that's been made over the past 40 years i know that sometimes it can get discouraging to think about what hasn't been done or what families still need but i think it's also important to reflect back on where things stood 40 to 50 years ago to see how our understanding of autism has changed and how it's really led to real life solutions for families and adults on the spectrum. So I want to introduce Giacomo Vivanti. He's an associate professor in the Early Detection and Intervention Program at the AJ Drexel Autism Institute at Drexel University. And he and a colleague, Daniel Messinger, who is at uh, University of Miami, recently wrote a paper that was published in the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders as part of a special issue that was named "Theories of Autism and Autism Treatment from the DSM-3 through Present and Beyond: The Impact on Research and Practice." Welcome, Dr. Vivanti, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Alicia.
0: So let's go ahead and dive in. Um, you put in the beginning of the paper, you, you kind of outline the different phases of where people, scientists thought that there were primary deficits or even strengths, starting with the DSM-3. Can you take us through what some of the understanding of autism has, autism has been from the DSM-3 and then where it is today?
1: Yeah, the DSM-3 was a landmark because it recognized autism as a distinct Entity. All of the previous editions of the DSM, they were mixing autism in the context of child schizophrenia, early psychosis. It was very confusing. Um, and most of all, it basically provided the first objective description of the autism symptoms, of the condition, without mixing it with interpretations. So in the previous editions, of the DSM, you will read something like um, a a child is autistic or schizophrenic when they cannot develop an identity separate from their mothers. That that was the kind of language that was supposed to guide the the practice of of practitioners. So that changed completely. In 1980, with the DSM 3 the idea was we describe what we can actually see. And that improved reliability people in different parts of the world and people in different settings, they were talking about the same things now when they were talking about about autism. It uh, introduced the concept that autism was part of a a sort of a family of of conditions. Back then they were called pervasive developmental disorders that that stayed uh, for a while. And the idea there was that, let's talk about what we see And then, based on that, people could start developing some theoretical frameworks that were different from the sort of wide speculations that existed in the pre-DSM3 era. Mostly the idea that autism was caused by parents. That was was still the prevailing um, idea in in those years. For example, in, in my country, in Italy, Uh, Still, in the early 90s, um, when my two brothers who um, are autistic, they were diagnosed with autism in the early 90s. And back then, the idea was that their autism would have been caused by the fact that my mother was a medical doctor. And the idea was that if you you are a medical doctor, that means you're probably a cold sort of parent who prioritizes career over uh, caregiving. And so the treatment was psychotherapy for my mother and nothing for my brothers. And that gives you an idea of how a theoretical framework can be so drastically impacting practice. Now, this is long gone. One of the reasons why um, the DSM 3 changed that is because it started avoiding any interpretation within the description of the syndrome. And so things started to change. The next step was really the development of cognitive theories of autism. That happened in the the 1980s. So there was a new wave of theories that basically had the same idea that all the symptoms of autism, they might boil down to a primary cognitive deficit. There is one specific disruption in the way Uh, children with autism um, read the information around them that causes all the symptoms to happen. And, you know, one of those theories was the idea that uh, difficulties in theory of mind or understanding other people's thoughts and feelings and all of that could be the origin of all the symptoms of autism. Um, Another theory was, was highlighting the tendency to be focused on details instead of the big picture as the primary deficits, and and, and there were others. Now those were important because they were created as empirically testable theories, meaning that, unlike the, the old psychodynamic interpretations of autism, where autism was placed in the realm of unconscious, you cannot measure it, you cannot see it. Those new theories were about things that you can measure, were about things that you can create a test for. And so that created research and created knowledge. And guess what? That research did not provide unequivocal support for any of those theories. Um, it provided clues that were relevant to intervention, but it did not say, "This is the theory that explains everything." So that happened uh, in in the context of also understanding that it was not a single gene associated with autism, that there was not a single part of the brain, there was not a single anything. Um, And so theories moved to a new stage where they were trying to figure out not how all the behaviors were about one single thing, but about patterns, about things that might change over time and the intersection between the biology, the behavior of the child, and what happens at different ages um, in in a way, in the framework of what typical development um, is and how things change over time. I would say that this work that started looking at things developmentally, it it came from different directions. A a lot was the baby siblings uh, work. That, you know, this is about understanding how autism might develop over time by looking at siblings who are at risk for autism by virtue of having an older sibling who have autism. And what that research showed is not at some point the symptoms of autism are all there and they're the same and they don't change over time. What we saw were patterns, early emerging features some of them related to the core symptoms, some of them unrelated to the core symptoms. That basically brings some risk or some uh, likelihood of the development of the sibling follow the trajectory that we call autism, but in a way that is probabilistic, it's not deterministic, meaning that there's a risk, there's a likelihood. And so that opened up a new way of seeing things where it's not... Um, this is what caused autism, but these are elements that might concur when there is a certain critical mass, for example, of of risk factors to lead developmental patterns, to lead the child's behaviors into that particular constellation of symptoms that we call uh, autism, but there are many aspects of it that can be conceptualized as a delay, something that in uh, autism doesn't happen at the age where it happens at different ages, for example, or some others will be deviances, something that doesn't happen in typical development. Some of these patterns might be um, somehow um, influenced by the kind of interventions that we're doing. So that opened a new era for intervention as well.
0: How did this realization that it was originated prenatally how did that affect kind of the mindset of this was something that that mothers caused or parents w- were deterministic about what was the cause of their child's autism?
1: That was a revolution, and I think we should we should probably mention the 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 work of, of Sir Mike Rutter, who recently passed away. Um in the 1970s, uh, basically challenging uh, a cultural hegemony in the field that if the child has any sort of difference um, or, or, or condition, it must be something about the mother. This line of thinking was really challenged by the work on genetics that that uh, Michael Rutter with Susan Falstein started in the 70s. And that evolved in a way that allowed people to start thinking about, okay, This is something that originates from biology. That doesn't mean we can't do anything about it. That was an important uh, sort of developmental step in our thinking. Biology doesn't mean um, your brain is damaged. Biology means there are different biological constraints to your development. There are different factors of a biological nature that are shaping your trajectory for development. Now, it was a major change because people could, first of all, have a different interaction with the parents, even if they were not blaming parents explicitly. Many clinicians, maybe they were thinking that parents were responsible Uh, for the child's autism. So what happens if you think that is that you probably don't really trust them. And what happens to the parents, you might not trust the clinician because maybe they're insinuating that it's something about what you did or there's some kind of something to blame about you. So to make it explicit, this is a condition that was not caused by you, by your behavior or by you vaccinating your child, that that came later. But that's an important thing to clarify because it goes back to parent blaming. No, this is caused by some differences in the biology that shapes early brain development. And that doesn't mean, that's not a verdict of, there's nothing we can do about it. That's about establishing a common ground. And now we're partners in this common ground, practitioners and and parents have the same goals. Um, And from there, now we're looking at interventions that might be able to um, interact with the biology in a way that helps children with autism.
0: So let's talk about that intervention because the theories of intervention obviously have evolved for the better um, instead of, as you mentioned, treating the mother rather than focusing on helping the child. uh, It has evolved since as these theories of development and biology um, have have evolved and and kind of taken hold. How has the the nature of behavioral and non behavioral interventions been shaped by some of these landmark scientific revelations?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very it was a very important moment when people started approaching intervention from the angle of the scientific method, meaning a lot of the literature in the 1950s and the 1960s where vignettes. it was people describing a clinical case, um, Johnny had this particular profile and we did a psychotherapy and this is what we saw. Um, and that, Kind of clinical descriptions did not help a lot because they were basically not following the basic rule of the scientific method, which is allowing for replication, allowing for another person to test whether those results were indeed there and, re- and relevant to other uh, interventions. So we need to credit the field of applied behavior analysis. Uh, to introduce the concept that intervention can be approached from the point of view of collecting data and replicating studies. Um, Although it should be said that uh, it wasn't just um, Ivar Lovas and and his team at UCLA, we also had Eric Schopler doing intervention work that was also um, approaching intervention from a post-psychoanalytic um perspective and, and and collecting data. So what happens after is that the basic philosophy of applied behavioral analysis that didn't change. The idea is that we are data driven, looking at the observable phenomena, and this will help us with being objective and this will help us with figuring out whether this worked or not worked. That philosophy is really it's not the foundation of ABA, it's the foundation of the scientific method. So it's it's been adopted, I think, now in a way that is and should be uncontroversial in terms of its basic commitment to empiricism, the basic commitment to prove things, to provide evidence. What has changed are the specific strategies of intervention that were used to facilitate skill acquisition and, and, and learning and learning. In children on the spectrum. Um, it changed because of theories again. Uh, a lot of the theoretical framework uh, that you see in the early intervention work from applied um, from behavioral analysis was not including knowledge from child development, right? And so a lot of what we see were practices that today will come across as not being. Um, calibrated around the child developmental stages, around the way different children learn um, at different different developmental stages. Um, So for example, research that came out from developmental psychology um, in the the 80s and 90s were pointing to the fact that an excessively directive style does not necessarily facilitate learning in, in young children. That kind of research initially was not uh, included in in the ABA work, so a lot of what we saw um, early on was structured approaches with a lot of adult directive instruction. Um, now, there's there's different reasons, but you know, part of it was a divide that uh, that, that that we still see in the field about people from different professional circles being a little self-referential, only reading the literature pertaining to their own discipline. And so there was little cross-fertilization um, between the different, again, the different scientific disciplines. Now I'm talking about research that is that is based on, on on data. But there was there was little communication. Now that is changing, has changed a lot of knowledge from developmental Um, psychology, just from knowledge that that comes about how um, different styles of interaction might facilitate or might hinder learning for someone who is a toddler, for someone who is an infant, versus someone who is an adult. um, That knowledge is now informing many approaches to uh, applied behavioral analysis. It, it remains a topic of controversy, and part of it is because of the a little bit about the rhetoric that different people use, often demonizing um, approaches they don't agree with by saying that this is not scientific. Uh, or, you know, in fact, when the field of applied behavioral analysis started to um, to do work on autism the alternative to ABA was the psychodynamic psychotherapy. So the objection that that was not scientific was really valid at the time. It was a sort of a conflict between two different uh, approaches to, to what is science. Now that has changed because now there are different interventions that are available that use data as a platform that engage in the kind of empirical research that generates provable, replicable um, data. But the rhetoric is still there sometimes.
0: Well, there's also a, um, a thought, and you mentioned this in your paper, so I'll bring it up, um, that there is a the fear uh, that, some, that scientists, clinicians, parents want to, quote unquote, change the essence of who a person with autism is. And um, I have an 11-year-old daughter on the spectrum and I certainly do not want to change the essence of who she is. I think she's adorable and funny, but it she does need help. She needed help um, learning certain skills and she needed help managing emotions. And, and I think it's a fine line to argue that you want to help someone by supporting a different learning style versus changing who they are. So um, can you just explain how the expansion of, or the understanding that there are there's not just one type of autism, that there are different types of autism has possibly influenced how individuals on the uh, autism spectrum receive support and in interventions?
1: Yeah, um, that objection, you are somehow uh, trying to do some sort of conversion therapy so that the, the, the child is no longer who, who she or he is. The, the way I address that, including when I'm talking with my, with my colleagues who are autistic, is that ultimately, education is designed to affect the child's behavior. Any Mm -hmm. child who's going to school, any child who's going to daycare, school is an institution that is designed to change you. Mm -hmm. In a sense, not to deny who you are, but does early education affects our behavior? Yes, it does. Now, the way I see it is typical children, there's there's an acknowledgement in the society that typical children should receive education including early childhood education and then school education. The same needs to be the case for those on the autism spectrum. Otherwise, if we don't provide educational opportunities, we will be violating human rights. So it's about education. And education, yes, does change something. It shapes your behavior. It rewards certain behaviors. It discourages certain behaviors. the criticisms to if you if you if you if you support that criticism, then that should be um, extended to all ways that societal institutions uh, basically are in place to shape a child's development. Now, the other part of that argument is that there are some behaviors that a child with autism might have, such as hand flapping, for example that should not be necessarily the target of an educational intervention. That argument, I think, has a lot of value because we did have a history of looking at behaviors of a child in the context of what is normal and what is different. And that was wrong in general. While now we do think about behaviors of the child as something that is empowering, does it help the child achieving uh, goals, achieving their dreams, contributing to the society, not just whether the surface of that behavior is different. So children with autism, like all children need help, that help can be um, accomplished through educational, clinical programs, but it's not about making them look the same as everybody else is about empowerment, is about giving them the tools, first of all, language, um, so that they can be self-advocates or any other form of communication that that helps them. Uh, But that is through a combination of respecting their unique patterns of strengths and weaknesses and their personality, but also shaping their behavior. That that happens to all children, it needs to happen to children with autism unless we decide that they do not deserve education.
0: No, I agree. And I think the word ABA for probably good reasons, those three letters have been very stigmatized and there's been uh, a real misunderstanding about what the principles are and how they're used to provide supports. Um, I know a lot of families during the pandemic that were using ABA without even knowing they were using ABA because they were doing things like breaking down the school day into more manageable tasks um, and having children think about how to evaluate and attack each one of those tasks and get rewarded for accomplishing each one so that they could confidently move on to the next one. But that wasn't perceived as ABA, that was perceived as, as, as teaching style um, during the pandemic. What would you say to a parent that says, or a person on the spectrum or an autistic adult that says things are no different now than they were 40 years ago?
1: So, first of all, I will acknowledge the frustration with the, the, the perception that change is very slow um, that all of the resources that we are uh, putting in place sometimes feel like they're not creating that revolutionary breakthrough that that, that, that we would like to see. So that, that frustration comes from a, from a reasonable place. But change um, is very true and, and it's it's very visible when we look at, for example, how frequently children with autism are diagnosed within the first four years of life compared to what was happening before, how frequently we engage with pediatricians, teachers, people in general who have heard about autism. That didn't used to be the case. Um, When when I started being in this field in the 90s, autism was this rare condition nobody uh, had heard about. In fact, for people who wanted to have an academic career, you will be discouraged to do research on autism because you you will hear that it's so rare and it's such an obscure uh, topic. So that has changed. The integration of knowledge from child development into applied behavioral analysis is another big development. Um, the, The fact that so many individuals with autism have language Likely because they receive higher quality intervention. Um, for example, the number of, of actual just research articles on intervention that, that are that are that have a solid scientific methodology. That means that the work on intervention has increased a lot. We moved from a few, a handful of papers that were informing policy. We had a handful of papers that policymakers could be referred to when making decisions about services, uh, we, we went from there to dozens of important research you know, with data that can be used by policymakers to make decisions. What we need to think about is how this incremental change, ultimately, it's difficult to perceive, just like when you see someone growing. You see it every day, so you don't see the, the change. But if you look back, like we did in this article, and we look at 1980 when the DSM-3 came out. It's a oh my god realization. It's so much has changed the way we think, the way we act, uh, and the way we think about the future too. So this is good news. It doesn't need to. Uh, it, it doesn't mean we're happy with what we have. We are hungry for more knowledge. We need more knowledge. We need more research. Uh, the work that you guys are doing at the autism Science Foundation is pivotal for that but we also need to acknowledge that we can look back at the past and think, okay, we did do something that did help children and families.
0: Well, thank you so much for that perspective and thank you for writing that article. I know it was a a labor of love, um, but it really does put things into perspective. I will share a link to the PubMed link so you can at least read the abstract in the podcast summary. Um, and as always, email me if you want to see a copy of the paper. Um, Thank you, Dr. Vivanti. We really appreciate your time, and uh, we look forward to speaking to you again.
1: Thank you for having me.